our mindset, we come to a sermon that I didn't want to preach. And I saw uh, the need to preach it. And whenever I uh, put it in the schedule, I didn't realize I would be dealing with it myself. And a topic that many in this room are experiencing right now. I appreciate your prayers as I preach. And because uh, it's while I was studying, I was weeping. And I'm just, I don't want to preach like that. So I pray that you just help uh, pray for me as I preach. The topic that many are experiencing in this room, then what I want to talk about today is grief. As I said, I don't want to preach this sermon, but I have to stand back and be amazed at how God placed this sermon on my plans at this time of my life. I've titled the sermon, Will This Ever End? It's a fitting title, I think. It's a question that is often asked in counseling, in grief support groups, in pastor's offices. The direct answer is no, but it will get somewhat easier. Have you ever looked at your life or a situation that you find yourself in and just feel let down by God? You look around you and you just feel disappointed in what he has allowed. Well, you don't say it out loud, but you feel it in your heart and your spirit. I'll tell you, you're not alone. David felt it. Elijah felt it. Job felt it. And Habakkuk feels it here. Have you ever told them that you're just angry at them? I have. The first time I went to my mother's grave, after the funeral was over, life began to move on. It was actually the morning that we were going to leave for vacation to Tennessee. I had to go somewhere to get something before we left, and I passed the cemetery, so I decided I would step, stop by there and go to the grave. I got out of my car, feeling okay, feeling like I can handle this. I got out of the car, and the feeling hit my stomach like a brick to the gut. Despair, anger, grief, all of it all at once. I stood at my mother's grave and I told God that I was angry at him. I wasn't disrespectful. I didn't yell. I just expressed my heart. I wanted more time. I wanted more healing. I wanted to share my church with my mother. I wanted to share my mother with my church. I wanted to be able to seek her wisdom about raising my kids about dealing with people, about plans for the future. But I can't any longer. And I was mad. But I felt God take it, accept it, I mean, my anger. I felt God listening to my heart's crying and my body's weeping. Habakkuk shared some hard questions in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. And in these verses, we get the picture of number 1, the circumstances of the griever. Perhaps you don't find yourself grieving at this moment. You're not in the circumstances that many in this room find themselves today. But I tell you, you will. Every one of our loved ones will die eventually. It's a morbid thought, I know. But the truth is, the statistics are grim. 
one in every one person dies. Right? When you do find yourself in these circumstances, you'll find yourself asking these same hard questions. Habakkuk cried, how long shall I cry? And thou will not hear me. Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou will not save. Habakkuk is an interesting book. Most of the prophets wrote what God spoke to them, and they shared it with the people. Habakkuk writes what he speaks to God and records God's answers. It's unique in that way. It's a series of prayers. Habakkuk has found himself in a country that is vile and wicked, the nation of Israel. They've rejected God and have turned to violence against their own people. My phone is talking to me. No. I know what country I speak of. Siri is trying to preach for me to watch these AIs. But Habakkuk records his grief at what he sees all around him. His grief at the loss of his country to the wickedness. God's own chosen people to wickedness. Habakkuk begins with a question for God as to why heaven is silent in his grief. How long does this need to go on? Have you ever felt that way? Maybe you're grieving the loss of a spouse. Maybe the loss of a child. Maybe the loss of a parent like me. The loss of a child to the world. The loss of a job that you invested much into. Loss of a dream. Maybe a loss of a marriage. Whatever you're grieving, it can sometimes feel that heaven is silent in your grief. You may find yourself asking, how long is this going to go on? Habakkuk in verse 3 asks another question that is often asked by those who mourn. Why? Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Habakkuk asks, why does God allow this violence? Our situation may be different. What we're grieving over may be different. Why did you let them die? Why did you not heal them? Why did you not let them catch the disease earlier? Why did the accident have to happen? Why are you allowing me to hurt so much? Turn with me over to Duke. Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3, just a page over in most Bibles. In chapter 3, verse 16, Habakkuk basically says he's unraveling, coming apart at the seams. He's heard from God, and what God has said is not good news. It was more bad news. Judgment was coming, and God was going to bring judgment by way of people that were more wicked than the Israelites. And Habakkuk finds himself coming apart. Verse 16, he says, When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. He's falling apart here. He sits and wonder at what God is telling him. How could this be true? 
that I might rest in the day of trouble when he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Can you imagine hearing that America, hearing from God that uh, America is going to be invaded by an enemy and overtaken and everyone, most of the people are going to be taken captive to their country. Can you imagine hearing that? He's wondering, what is God thinking? Have you ever asked that yourself? God, why? I, I know your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts, but what are you thinking? It would be so much easier for me if I would just be able, to, if you would just tell me what your thoughts are here, what your plans are. Maybe if I saw it from your perspective, it would help. So we see the circumstances of the griever. Many of us know it well. Now let's look at number two, the choice of the griever. Really, it should be the choices of the graver. The secular world around us gives us many options. Psychiatrists and psychologists tell us many different things. Everyone seems to come that's to the grieving with their own advice and opinions. There's no shortage of opinions. I've heard said that opinions are like belly buttons. Everyone's got one and no one wants to see it. Amen? Some will say you need to choose, first of all, the choice they give us is resignation. Not quitting, but just resign to it. If you want to heal from this, you're just going to have to resign to it. It's happened. What will be, will be. Just accept it and move on. By the way, you never move on. That's a foolish statement. You may move along in your grief or with your grief, but you'll never move on. You carry that person with you forever. And isn't that the way it should be? And some will say, just resign to the facts and you'll be able to move forward. I guess it was his or her time. Everything happens for a reason. Life goes on. Others Say you need to choose letter B, detachment. Just don't think about it. Just bear down and keep moving forward. Dive into work or hobbies and just don't think about it. The problem with this is that grief always has a way of forcing us to deal with it. And often delayed grief is far worse than just going ahead and doing the grief work that needs to happen in order to heal or at least find some healing. Then there are those who let her see, just say, you just need to have bravado. Hold your chin up. Put on a brave face. Grit your teeth and bear it. You'll get through this. Stay strong. The truth is, grief is uncomfortable. People don't know what to say. Especially when it's someone else's grief. They don't know how to handle it. We don't know what to say, and we don't know how to act. It's just uncomfortable. By the way, some things you might say is, I can't imagine what you're going through. Although, truth be told, everyone can imagine what we're going through in a way, a little bit, because that's why it's uncomfortable. I'm sorry for your loss, you might say. 
I don't know what to say. I wish I had the right words that would bring comfort to you. You and your family will be in my prayers. Or perhaps just share a happy memory of the person who passed. Or say, if and when you ever want to talk, just know that I'm a phone call away. I'm here. And say, maybe they were so wonderful, he'll be missed by many people. Say, I'm, I'm your friend. And if you need something, I'm here. If you can't think of anything to say, a hug may be appropriate. And sometimes just being with the person, not saying anything is appropriate. But whatever you do, be careful with your opinions. You really don't know how the sharp knife of bad opinions cut. But what principles of grief does God's word present? What did Habakkuk choose? In verse 16, we see that he's falling apart, but we see an amazing flip here. Maybe not a flip, but a choice. Habakkuk 3, 17, here in verse 17, Habakkuk says an amazing word. Look at Habakkuk 3, 17 with me. The word that stands out to me is the word, although. Although. Even though I'm hurting, even though I'm grieving, even though I don't understand, even though I can't change this, even though I'm angry, even though I'm disappointed. In Habakkuk's situation, he said in verse 17, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the oil shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off the, from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, there's no fruit that year to feed them. Although there's no fruit on the vines, no grapes, no juice, no wine. Although the labor of the olive shall fail, no oil, no olives, no meat of the olives. Although the fields shall yield no meat, no harvest, no meat because the cattle have starved because there's no harvest. Although the herd is not in the stalls, they have dwindled down to nothing. It's pretty bleak, isn't it? Notice that each of these things are a result of no rain. Situation that Habakkuk can't do anything about. He can't make it rain. It's completely out of his control. Although all of these things have happened, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. What an amazing statement. Habakkuk 3.18 tells us we need to focus on God. Focus on God. He said, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. I can't do anything to fix this. I don't know how long this is going to last. I don't know why this has happened to me. By the way, Job asked why. For 42 chapters, all they did was talk about it. Nobody came up with an answer. Then God himself comes along and showed himself for who he is. Job changed his mind regarding the situation. The Bible says he repented. Not of sin. He means he changed his mind. The Bible calls him Within all of this, he was righteous. 
but he never did get his answer to why. God said, this is who I am and how powerful I am. But he never answered why. But you know what? Job was okay with it. Once he had a realization of who God was, he was settled. Though the world around me is crumbling, although I don't understand, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. It's a choice. Praise him, not because of the situation. Praise him despite the situation. David, throughout the Psalms, over and over again, poured his heart out to God. I can't hear from you. These people are attacking me at other points. My situation is bleak. I can see no way out. And yet over and over and over again, David turns to praise. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. I will. What powerful words. Amen? It's a choice. I will. I will pick my Bible back up and learn more about God. Not seeking my answers, but seeking my God. That makes all the difference. I will get back on my knees and I will pour my heart out to God. My hurt, my pain, my doubts, my despair, my anger even. All of it. I will be faithful to God's house. I will get the perspective from God's word given by those who are even not under my six circumstances sometimes. I will fellowship with my brothers and sisters. I will serve and pour my life and heart into others. If you have come to just sit here and cry, if that's what you need to do, come anyways. Amen? Be faithful. If anyone is heartless enough to chastise you for crying, you tell me. And I'll go talk to them. And it won't be a fun talk. This is a place of healing. This is a place of comfort. This is not a museum to showcase our faith and showcase our godliness and we're perfect in every situation. Look at me. No. This is a hospital where the hurting help the wounded. We're here for each other. No matter what our wounds look like. Amen? And it's a commitment to do so even when it's uncomfortable. I will rejoice in the Lord. Because even if we can't see it, He is faithful. Even if we can't see it, He is worthy of our rejoicing. And He is in control. Even if it's not what we wanted it to happen, He still knows what's going on. I will rejoice. It's a choice of the griever. Now let's look at what the results are as we look at the capability of the greedy, of the griever, excuse me. The capability of the griever. Look at verse 19 with me. 
The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine hind places. At the end of his prayers, Habakkuk came to some realizations. Even in the midst of his grief, even in the midst of God's judgment on his people, and it hadn't even started yet, even in the midst of famine and despair, he chose to rejoice. I will. And the results are, letter A, we get strength from the Lord. The Lord is my strength. Reminds me of Isaiah 40, verse 29 through 31. Verse 29 says, He giveth power to the faint, to them that have no might. He increases strength. Verse 30 says, Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But verse 31, we know it well, don't we? But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We will all find ourselves growing weary and fainting at some point in our life. But if we wait upon the Lord, he will renew our strength. This word wait is a verb means to wait for, to look for, to hope for, to put your hope in it. The root word means to twist or wind around. And most commentators or most dictionary, Bible dictionary people say we have no idea what this means. I mean, we don't know how it applies to this, but we know they use this word for waiting on or hoping for because they use it all over the place. But we don't know why this root word is bringing this. But you know, I wondered if the word comes from twisting our life and our expectations around our hope in God and entwining ourselves in Him that He holds us up. Is it any wonder that He gives us strength when we do? Our strength is renewed. We're sore above the circumstances. We run and we don't be weary. We move forward, but we don't faint. In our grief, we choose to joy in God. We choose to hope in him. We choose to believe that he knows what he's doing, even though I can't see it. And honestly, I don't agree with it but I bend my will and my choices and my ideas on purpose to God. My pastor used to tell of sitting at the feet of his mother while she did needlework. I've done so many times sitting at the feet of my mother as she cross-stitched. I fully understood what he was saying. He would look in confusion as she sewed the patterns that had threads going back and forth in non-decipherable patterns. Beautiful colors here and there, but then she'd get a black ugly thread out, and she would go all over the place. Why are you using the black threads, he'd ask his mom. They're ugly compared to the beautiful blues and the teals and the yellows. And she'd say, just wait until I'm finished, and I'll show you. When she finished her work, she took the young boy upon her knee and he saw from her perspective. The threads that, from his point of view, went 
one way and another, no decipherable pattern at all from her perspective, put together a beautiful picture. One part to the other, the threads connected the blues together to make something beautiful. The happy yellows were placed here or there, connecting on the back by seeming, seemingly nonsense patterns. But they were orderly from her perspective. The dark and gloomy black thread did its work to complete the image, outlining the parts, adding shadows to complete the picture. In my life, I may not understand why the dark threads of our life are interspersed with the happy yellows and beautiful blues. But someday, Lord willing, we'll be able to see the picture of our life from God's perspective. Till then, we choose to joy in our God. We rely upon him for our strength. But Habakkuk continued in this verse. Verse 19, he continues, he says, yes, we can get our strength from the Lord God, but he says we can also get our stability from God. He says, and he will make my feet like hinds feet. One of the most amazing things about mountain deer or mountain goats is their sure-footedness. I remember when Michelle and I were just married. We traveled together with, for my job and traveled all over the western states of the United States. And we got to see some amazing things. When we were in Idaho, Wyoming, Montana area, I, I don't honestly remember exactly where we were. But I remember seeing a flock of mountain goats climbing or walking on a cliff's edge. It was slanted a little bit, but it was basically a cliff's edge. You can see the goats there from a picture I stopped and took a picture of. I had to zoom way in to try to get a picture. That's as best as I could get from what I could see. <laughs> they were all over this cliff's edge, walking on edges that could barely large enough for their hoofs. At some points, uh, higher, some of them higher up. I didn't get a very good picture, but I had to zoom way in, like I said, but they were all over this cliff. And yet they climbed at the edge without fear. I remember when I was a teenager, I, I went boulder jumping. That's what they called it. I never heard it before, never heard it since. But basically you climb a mountain and jump from boulder to boulder, one of the stupidest things I've ever heard in my life. So these older uh, adults <laughs> took us, and I think Amy knows exactly what I mean by adults because she knows who they are, took us, me and my brother, to southern Oklahoma, and we climbed the mountain and then tried to find our way back down <laughs> a different way. They didn't want to go the way we already saw, the established path. There's got to be more than one way. I could see our car down there. Uh, if we just go this way, surely we'll get there. At one point, we came to a small cliff edge. It was about 8 or 10 foot drop. It wasn't huge. But we had to climb down the cliff edge to get, continue down our path. And my feet were not stable like Heinz's feet. Let's put it that way. I hung onto a branch of a tree on the edge there. And I felt and I felt with my foot and tried to reach over the edge of the cliff and try to find some sort of foothold. But the tree of the branch got impatient and broke off. Down I went eight to ten feet and hit my head. It explains a lot about your pastor, doesn't it? Now you know why, right? 
Mike, my brother, was up above, still coming down to that cliff and saw there was a cliff and didn't know how big it was. In fact, we had just crossed over an area that was well over a hundred foot drop. And we had to cross this section in order to get to a safe place to go down. And they said, we think if we cross this way, we can go down there. The thing was, it was like, a, I don't know, it was a, a, a ridge type thing. And it had a drop off on both sides. But the drop off was only about two feet from the cliff edge. And so you could walk on this thing sideways, you know, kind of like that. But you had to lean way over on the cliff edge to balance yourself so you wouldn't fall. It was, a, it was less of a fall this way in front of us, but it's still probably 50 feet. I mean, down to darkness, you know, I don't know how deep it was, but these guys thought it was a great idea to take us across that. We made it, but soon after that, I fell off an 8 to 10 foot cliff. And my brother had no idea how high the cliff was. Figured it wasn't 100 foot since we're climbing down, but all just saw me disappear. <laughs> He ran up to the edge of the cliff and saw me 8 to 10 feet below rubbing my head. <laughs> I made a point to stay away from mountains nowadays. I try to stay away from peer pressure that tries to get me to go up those mountains too. My feet are not like Heinz feet. But God promises to stabilize our lives. It may feel out of control right now. The grief may feel like it's tearing you apart right now, but God will make your feet stable like Heinz feet. Yes, God will give you strength. God will give you stability. Thirdly, God will also allow you to get over the mountains with God. He says, and I will make he and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. High places are beautiful to look at from a distance. We often talk about the mountains and valleys of this life, and the mountains usually represent the good times, but when we're talking about making it over the mountains, we're not really talking about good times. <laughs> talking about trekking through this life, we're talking about the insurmountable situations. Those things that we want God to remove, get it out of our way. We want to go to our cupboard and pull out the mustard seed. And we want to look at God and say, "This you said this is all the faith I need. <laughs> okay, it's your turn. Move this mountain. But sometimes he doesn't. Oh, for sure, sometimes he does when it's his will. But other times, it's his sovereign will for us to go over the mountain. To go through the mountains sometimes. He'll make me to walk upon mine high places. Highway 1 in California is an incredible journey up the coast from California, and in California from Los Angeles to San Francisco. It's beautiful. If you're ever in California, it takes a little while, but it's a neat drive. But you better be ready for some curves. This is a picture I took, so I think it was on our honeymoon. From time to time, you come to a bridge that connects one mountain edge to another. In the next picture, you can see some beautiful things along the way. This is taken through one of the arches of a bridge we were stopped on for traffic. And you see some beautiful sights. When I was studying for this sermon, I, I thought of these bridges. 
You know, many times God brings us bridges in our lives. He doesn't remove the mountain. Below the bridge is rocks and waves of the ocean and dangers of many kind. But the designer didn't remove the dangers. He just built a way to go over it. To go through it. He'll make me to walk upon mine high places. Grief is a part of life. Every person will experience grief. It's part of this fallen world that we live in. But grief is not sin. Amen? You know how I know? Because God grieves. He grieves because of sin, but he grieves, and God cannot sin. Ephesians 4.30 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. What does God grieve about? Let's look at the context here for just a little bit of a planned detour for just a moment, okay? Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away with you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We grieve God by our unholy communication, our anger that's undue or excessive, a life of anger, our bitterness. Our strife. We grieve God when we do not forgive as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven us. But back to the point. Grief is not sin. But it is something that is a result of this sinful world. We'll all experience it. We can choose to wallow in our grief. A life doomed to a cycle of grief over and over. Or we can choose to rejoice in God. Allow him to give us the strength that we need. Allow him to stabilize our feet as we walk. Allow him to get us over the mountain. In a book on mourning, written by a pastor of many years ago, he actually pastored the First Baptist Church of Vallejo, California, Dad. In the city my dad pastored for over 20 years. Different church. But the pastor tells us that the path for healing involves choices. These choices will determine the severity and the longevity of our acute grief. We'll always have grief. But that acute grief that starts at that first few years. Once the shock of the loss wears off and we go through that acute stage of grief that we all have to go through. There comes a fork in the path. We can continue in the cycle of grief and resign ourselves to the poor me attitude of the chronic depression, the anger towards ourselves, towards anybody else who dares to cross our path, the low life satisfaction. We just aren't satisfied with life anymore. Or we can choose to readjust. It may take one or two years to even get to the point where we can. But we choose to trust in God immediately. Rejoice in him. Sometimes you have to choose it over and over and over and over. 
We choose to move forward over the mountain with God's help. We reorganize our life. We complete the grief work that's necessary to help, get our help. We continue in the we can continue in the cycle of grief and resign ourselves to a hard life, or we can just do the work, pick up our interest eventually that we once had, and as best as we can, move forward. Set and attain new goals. Form new relationships and associations that can help us and guide us and be there with us. We find our identity not as a spouse or a parent or a child or whatever it may be. We find our identity in Christ. I'm a child of God, and he'll never leave me. More than that, he'll give us strength. But more than that, he'll stabilize my feet. But more than that, he'll walk with me upon my high mountains. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would bless us today. Father, I pray that just something that is said will help. I know studying this sermon was extremely hard. And I had to go through a grief process all over again to study it. But Lord, you helped me. Father, as I poured my heart out to you, I felt your big shoulders take it. And thank you for that. I thank you that you'll never leave me nor forsake me. Though others around me forsake me, though others leave, you'll never leave me nor forsake me. I thank you for that. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, and bless us. Heal us. Help us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Let's read. Uh, let's not, not read. Let's sing. Uh, page number 355. Jesus.